Will you join me as we pray together? Thank you for your grand and glorious affirmations that you are Lord and that you alone can uh, break the hearts of your people and change them, Father. We have no words, no works, even no promises to bring to you that we can count upon. With, with the Apostle Paul, we confess that we know that in our flesh dwells no good thing, Father. Sean prayed earlier on and before we came in, we can do nothing apart from you, but that in you all things are made possible for us. And so we ask you to do what you have promised. And we ask you now in the next little while to speak very specifically through your word. We know that your word is living and active. We know it is a two-edged sword that pierces our hearts. We know that it is bread for us to eat. <clears throat> we know that it's a script of a play from which we get our cues. But we are so fearfully aware that they can just become flat ink words on a piece of paper and just go right through our minds without affecting us. So we ask, living word, do not allow that to happen this morning. Grip your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we stand at the beginning of the 20th year of solemn assembly in our church. Two decades of waiting on God at the beginning of every year. And for those of you who have joined our church, have been coming here since last year's solemn assembly, and are not quite sure what it's all about, you'll get a, f- a flavor of that today as we continue the sermon. And so this message is really a call to us as God's people to gather together in prayer every night this week for solemn assembly. But today in our worship service, we also have the delightful privilege of, of commissioning and setting apart uh, Chris Paramala as a senior associate pastor in our church as he begins our full-time ministry. And so this uh, message will also serve as a charge to him and to Phoebe. And there's a passage of scripture that is uh, uniquely suited to serve this double function of both calling God's people to prayer and charging a pastor and his wife as they are formally set aside for ministry in a local church. It is the prayer of Moses in Exodus chapter 33 verses 11 to 18. But first let me give you a little bit of background. The story actually begins in chapter 32 of Exodus. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God. But the Israelites down in the valley have already been led into idolatry. They have built the golden calf. Moses comes back down from the mountain. 3,000 people die that day because of the judgment of God. And the same Moses who executed that judgment goes back up the mountain the next day to plead with God to have mercy upon his people. And he says, God, even blot out my name if you must, but save your people. And God's declaration to him is, now I will blot out those who are sins, not you. You go ahead and lead my people. That's how chapter 32 ends and this is where our story begins in chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And then God ends by saying, so now take off your ornaments, so that I may know what to do with you. Two phrases in this, these verses have always gripped my heart. The first one is when it says, when the people heard these disastrous words. Now, 
you have to put yourself back in their place and listen to what God has just said to them. He said, I'm going to send an angel before you. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I'm going to blow away all your opposition. And I'm going to bring you into a land of milk and honey. What's so disastrous about that? That would be like God saying to you and me at the beginning of this year, to you through me, Sunda, tell the people that this year, I'm going to send my angels in your midst. I'm going to go before you and I'm going to send, give you new territory that you've never had before. I'm going to blow away all possible opposition, both human and demonic. And by the end of 2012, you're going to feel like you've come into a land of milk and honey. How many of you would say, wow, those are disastrous words? You'd probably say, hey, I want to be part of that church. Bring it on, God. You know what made it disastrous? He said, I'm not coming with you. It was the possibility of success without presence. And listen, that's the first thing you need to record. The possibility of success without presence should terrify us. It is all too possible to have all the trappings of success without the presence of God. I think it was Jim Simbala, uh, pastor of uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle, who talked about North America's love affair with what he called ABC, attendance, buildings and cash. All the visible manifestations of success. Yet every one of these things is possible to succeed in without God's Spirit. I remember a time in 1983 when we were attempting to plant that church in Mississauga with Kim Kearns. About a handful of us went out on a Saturday afternoon to deliver some flyers in the neighborhood just to let the people know that we are thinking of planting a church there. In the weekend that we just distributed the flyers, another group had come in, built a prefab building and filled it with 600 people by Sunday morning. And, they, and this was a sect that didn't even believe that Jesus was God. They beat us hands down in attendance, buildings, and they had oodles of cash to finance it. All without Jesus. Success without presence is a terrifying prospect. And it should terrify us. Solemn assembly at the beginning of every year is our way of saying to God, we don't want success without presence. We are willing to forego all of the visible reality dimensions of success. But we will not settle without your presence, God. No, he also refers to the people here as a stiff-necked people. It's a, it's a powerful metaphor for an arrogant, unrepentant people. Because the opposite of a stiff neck is a neck that is willing to bow down. And so in solemn assembly, we come before God to confess our sins. That's why the first half of solemn assembly, tonight, tomorrow night, and Tuesday night, is the exact opposite of a stiff neck. We allow the word of God to probe our hearts, and we acknowledge before God the sins that he shows us. Specifically the seduction of success with our presence, amongst other things as well. The other phrase that has always gripped me about this section is that last one. It says, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. The people of Israel had barely been constituted a nation at this time. They'd been delivered from slavery. They'd gone through the Red Sea, which the New Testament tells us was symbolic of being baptized and formed into a new people of God. And here they were, barely formed as a nation, and their fate hung in the balance. Because of the horrible sin of exchange glory that the golden calf represented. Now Canada is not a theocratic nation, we are a democratic nation. The true theocracy today is the nation is the people of God all over the world of whom Jesus Christ is the head. 
And that nation is not under threat of this extinction because Jesus said, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is our point of contact with this story at this point? The point of contact for me is how Moses responded when God basically said to them, I'm going to decide what to do with you as a nation because of this grossness of your rebellion, whether you will even exist. Moses' response gives us our point of contact. In verses 7 to 11, he says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and leave, rise up and worship each at his tent door. This is the point of contact as far as I'm concerned. When God basically, in effect, said to Moses, just leave me alone, I have to make up my mind what to do with you people. Moses was an immensely burdened leader who realized that this was no time to leave God alone. <laughs> When a nation's fate hung in the balance and God was making up his mind what to do with them, Moses said, I am going to do my best to influence you. And so Moses pitches a tent and he calls the tent of meeting. And there he goes to plead with his God on behalf of a people whose destiny is hanging in the balance. Moses was an immensely burdened leader who took a strong initiative. That's the point of contact. Leaders have to take the initiative when it comes to things like solemn assembly. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pitch a tent here. From tonight till Friday night, there's a tent being pitched in this place. A tent of meeting to plead with God on behalf of us, His people. And as I said, leaders have to take the initiative. I take the initiative every year to preach a sermon like this. All through December, I'm attempting to wait on God to see what kind of portions of scripture he's going to give us to examine our hearts, to lead us in appropriate confession for the first three days of solemn assembly. Vijay is leading Upper Room Community Church in a solemn assembly during this week, and he and his team will be coming here on Thursday night, as we will pray with them, and they will lead us. Pastor Allen is preparing a team of people who will lead us every Friday night in attempting to listen to what God has to say to us. In addition to our evening prayer times, our pastoral staff will be meeting every afternoon this week from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock to pray in each of our rooms for each individual. And our elders will be fasting and praying every evening from 6.30 to 7.30 together. And then come in here in your midst and continue to pray and seek your face. Leaders are taking the initiative. No, we may not be as immensely burdened or spectacular as Moses, but we are trying our best to be. And even though our church, our community, may not feel like it's in crisis, there's still enough things to concern us as leaders. I jotted down several things. Large numbers of people who tend to view their Christianity as just a passport to heaven while they live their lives here on earth with hardly indistinguishable value systems from those of the world. The idols of pleasure, power, possessions and popularity are just running wild. Large numbers of people do not take, are not intentional about their spiritual growth. They are exactly at the same point in their walk with God this year as they were last year, maybe even regressed. 
Many sit on the sidelines not using their spiritual gifts that God has given to them to build the body of Christ and to extend the kingdom. The lost and the poor are on the margin of their concerns of everyday living. The word of God lies largely neglected and prayer is almost completely absent as far as everyday life is concerned. Marriages are beginning to fall apart after they've been together for 15, 20, 25 years. After last night's sermon, a visitor came and, and wanted to meet with me saying, 26-year-old marriages fall apart. We're concerned about the passivity of many men and fathers when it comes to being spiritual leaders in their homes and setting the spiritual temperature. There are people who are continuing to live in refusal to forgive people that have hurt them, continuing to nurse hurts and grudges for decades. Our young people are allowing the, word, uh, the world to penetrate to such an extent into their lives that they live two whole lives completely and become easy pickings in university. There are many reasons for leaders to be deeply exercised and seek God for mercy. And so that's what we'll do. That's why we have solemn assembly. Now, the interesting, a couple of other interesting things about this part of the story. Moses used to pitch a tent, but he says anybody could go. Leaders take the initiative, but anybody could go. And my hope and my prayer is that you'll all come to this tent. If you've never come to solemn assembly before, come one night. If you've come once before, come twice. If you've come once or twice, maybe come every week, every night this week. Where that's not possible because of young children, alternate with your spouses if you can. And it's not because those who come are any better. You notice the other thing in this story? That those who never went to the tent, they just stood outside their own tents. They became worshippers as a result of what was going on in the tent. What an incredible privilege and opportunity for those of us who come to influence this entire church. This has nothing to do with pride and superiority. It is an incredible privilege to seek God on behalf of our whole community. So now we get to the heart of Moses' prayer. Because we ask ourselves, what's going on inside the tent? What kind of praying is going on that is having this kind of effect outside the tent? We don't have to guess because the Bible tells us what Moses was praying. That's why he begins, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. I'm just struck by how different this prayer is than the way most of us pray. Notice how he begins. You, you've told me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know. And if you and I were completing that prayer, we would probably say, but you've not let me know how to do it. We're a society that is consumed with methodology. That's not what Moses said. Moses said, you told me to leave the people, but you haven't told me who's coming with me. Well, God already told them, I'm going to send an angel. That's exactly the point. Moses said, I don't want angels. He's still after presence, you see. He doesn't want success without presence. He hasn't taken his eyes off that. And then he says, show me your ways. Now, now Moses was a leader who was well trained in the wisdom of Egypt. And the wisdom of Egypt knew how to build pyramids over the bodies of slaves. Moses so far only knew how to do even God's work, Egypt's ways. That's why when he first got this awareness that he was going to lead the people of God, what did he do? He killed an Egyptian. 
He resorted to murder. That's doing God's work which he rightly discerned God was calling him to. But he was doing it in man's ways, in Egypt's ways. And Moses knew he needed something else. God's work, you see, has to be done in God's ways. Which means, which means that people get a priority over everything else. We don't do it perfectly in our church, not by a long chart. But we, that's why we've ingrained this into a core value in our church. But we will not violate people in the interest of results. That's why in solemn assemblies, so many of the sins we will confess are relational. Remember I told you early on last year, uh, the observation that most sins find their expression ultimately as relational sins. And they come to their worst expression with those people who are closest to us. Our spouses, our children. And within the local church. And so, it should not come as a surprise to us. That God will probe us in the area of relational sins more than anything else. Now the other thing Moses says here is, show me your ways. So that, now at that point we would probably expect him to say, with our orientation towards methodology. Okay Moses, you've told us about God's presence. Now show me your ways so I know how to do your work. No, show me your ways so that I might know you by name. This is the real success. This is the real measure of success, right? That we would know God by name. Yes, we hope that in 2012, many people will come to Christ. That many will be baptized. We hope that many, many more people will fill these services in joyful worship. We hope that many more young people go out in cross-cultural experiences. Many more international workers will be sent out. But at the end of it, the real measure of success will be whether this congregation knows God whether by name or not. That's what John 17.3 says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Paul in praise to the Ephesians, he says, I pray that he may grant to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. This is the purpose of all the self-examination through the scriptures. This is the purpose of of broken-hearted confession before God. Not to beat ourselves up and make us look bad, so that somehow by making ourselves feel bad enough in God's presence, we earn brownie points with Him. That's an insult to grace. That's why Sean's picture of his niece and his brother is so appropriate. God calls us to broken-hearted repentance so that we might get to know Him better. And then the other thing that I loved about this prayer, he says... uh, If I have found favor in your sight, teach me your ways, show me your ways, so that I might know you by name, and find even more favor in your sight. (laughs) One man put it this way, little grace has become the basis for pleading for much grace. (laughs) All the things that have happened in this church in 2011 that we rejoice in, and wait till you read Daniel's report. There are many good things that have happened. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking we earned them. That somehow we were good enough for God to bless us. Everything is a gift of grace. Free, undeserved, lavished upon us because of Jesus' mercy and grace to us. And so, this year, we want to say, God, you've been so gracious to us in 2012, we're going to do hard to pay you back. That's an insult to grace. Instead, we need to say, pour it on even more. Double and triple the grace this coming year. So that at the end of this year, we are even more indebted to you than we are. That's what honors God.
not repaying of debts. But each year get more and more in debt to grace. Each year, this much grace becomes the basis for pleading for even more grace. If I have found favor in your sight, teach me your way, show me your way, so I might find even more favor in your sight, and I may know you by name, O God. That's what solemn assembly is all about. It paves the way for a year of grace. You see, it is only those who confess their sins that will ever know grace. (laughs) Those who think they have no sins to forgive, just shutting themselves out from the grace of God. No wonder their own lives are not marked by grace towards others. Instead, they become harsh and judgmental people. But when our hearts are broken over our own sins and we receive grace, then it's a lot easier. I didn't say it's easy. It's a lot easier to be gracious towards others. Well, Moses continues. <coughs> and he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now we understand Moses' preoccupation with God's presence. Why is he so fixated on God's presence? You see, it is only the presence of God that would distinguish Israel and Canaan as a unique people. And their God is unique. The land of Canaan, modern day Israel, you know how small it is. In Moses' time, there were 31 different little kings inside that country. Can you imagine Israel divided up to 31 kingdoms? Each of those kings, probably not much bigger than Etobicoke, you know, used to fight with kings of other little city-states. And when they fought these battles, they were also conceived as battles between the gods of these little city-states. That's why you hear about the gods of the hills and the gods of the plains. So if, the, if uh, King Shan and King Sundar fought the battle and he beat me up, it would just be seen as Shan's gods beating up my god. But they're the gods of the hills. I'm the gods of the plains. So I come back next year to fight in the hills to see if I can beat him up. You know? That's how they conceived of their gods. So, if God sent the angel before Israel, Gave them success in the land of Canaan. But God didn't show up. Those victories would be interpreted just as the victories of little tribal gods here and there. Israel's Jehovah would be seen as just another tribal god. Maybe a god of the hills who, who struck it lucky today. You know? you know what that leads me to? This is one of the most important principles I learned from this passage. Success in Canaan would be no better than slavery in Egypt. As far as Jehovah's reputation among the nations was concerned. If God's presence did not go with the people, success in Canaan was no different than continued slavery in Egypt. Instead, Israel's victories in Canaan had to be of such a nature that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jehovah is supreme over the nations of the world. Otherwise, there was no point. It was God's reputation that was at stake. We as the Rexdale are a multicultural people serving a multicultural community. They have their gods they worship. What good is it going to do for the reputation of Jesus among the nations around us if this church was filled with all kinds of success within these four walls? If we had 52 wonderful worship experiences this coming year, if we had great, great small group experiences where we had wonderful meals together when encouraging and strengthening each other, if our giving doubled and tripled, what good would that do for the name of Jesus in our community? What if we even had a reputation of being a kind community that was interested in the poor in our community? Oh, they have their ministries to the poor too. Many a time my mother would see something spectacular here and come up with a story of something similar in her community. 
So Jesus is just one among other gods. Unless, unless God's presence were with this church in such a way that in these acts of kindness and service and witness, somehow it also telegraphed to them the uniqueness of Jesus. So that people would look around us and say, they don't just serve the poor, they just don't serve one another, they just don't do this, they do it in a way that's different from everywhere. Why is that so? It's because of their God, and He is different than everybody else. Now you ask me how we get there, I don't have the foggiest notion. That's why we pray, Lord, please, don't send us up. We will not go without your presence with the song we sang. That's why we have solemn assembly, to plead with God, to bless us with His presence. That there might be a unique authentication of the community at Rexdale. There might be a unique authentication of the Lord of Rexdale. That Jesus might receive the glory. Otherwise, success and failure are beside the point, as far as God's glory is concerned. So on Wednesday, after we finished our broken heart, at least done the bulk of it on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, then we start looking outward. On Wednesday we will be fanning out over the 60 or 70 ministry centers in this church and praying. Will you please pray for a unique authentication of whatever ministry you're praying for? Pray this way. God, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Pray that over every ministry that you're praying, that there will be a unique authentication of God in such a way that Jesus will receive the glory as unique and exalted through that ministry, in us and through us. And then finally, Moses finishes by saying, please show me your glory. As he reflected on the awful possibility of success without presence. As he saw the need to learn God's ways so he could do God's work in God's ways. As he realized that little grace was the basis for pleading for much grace. As he realized that a unique authentication of himself and his people was needed by the presence of God. Moses broke through to the conviction that this is where it all led. This was the bottom line. God, please show me your glory. Moses realized that nothing else would sustain him as a leader. Nothing else would sustain him as a leader but an ongoing encounter with the glory of God. I know that's true in my case. However weakly those, that principle operates. You know why? Because as you've heard me say before, God's glory is both the goal and fuel of all ministry. I, I still remember when... when John Piper introduced me to this in 1992 for the first time and it was a paradigm shift in my approach to life and ministry. God's glory is both the goal and the fuel of everything we do. It certainly is the goal. The book of Revelation tells us that when history has reached its culmination, there will be people from every tribe, nation and language worshipping God and worshipping Jesus. And in our Christmas message we heard that too. God has given Jesus a name because he humbled himself. And became obedient to the death of the cross. He's been given a name that's above every other name. That's the name Jehovah. At the name every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. That's, that's the consummation of history. But what may not be that obvious for us is that God's glory is also the fuel for ministry. It's also what keeps us going. 
Sometimes the secular world illustrates this better. If you would only see it then. I think I shared this analogy with you once before. There are various versions of it. Think of a man or a woman who's got completely intoxicated by sailing. They got gripped by the glory of sailing. So they have no trouble saving up money to buy a sailboat. Saving up more money to get accessories for that sailboat. They will have no trouble joining a sailing club. They will automatically subscribe to sailing magazines and devour them. And they will wait all winter in anticipation for the day when the boat can be put into the water once again. Oh, they will need instruction, but they will not need a single sermon on motivation. Why? Because the glory, the beauty, the desirability of sailing has already gripped their hearts. It is exactly the same with God. To some extent, to the extent that we see God as beautiful and desirable. To that extent, we'll hang around with people who pursue that glory. We will exchange stories about His glory. We will be happy to give money to promote that glory. Or to invest in the magnification of that glory in our own lives. We will not miss any opportunity to see more of that glory. We will want to upgrade our experience of that glory. Everything flows from that. That's why it is both the goal, it's both the fuel. That's why this prayer is absolutely foundational. That's why Moses ends up a progressive revelation of that glory. It begins in solemn assembly. It begins with broken hearted confession. It begins by paving the way for an invasion of that glory. And so we need to pray for an appetite for that glory. We need to pray for glimpses of that glory like Moses did. It's an interesting postscript to this whole story. If you read on from chapter 33 when this prayer ends to chapter 40 when the book of Exodus ends, the story goes something like this. God says to Moses, okay, you want to show me your glory? Come on up to the mountain again. By the way, bring through stone tablets with you. Because the previous ones were broken in destroying the golden calf. So Moses goes all the way up the mountain. And there he sees God. God causes his glory to pass before him. And Moses' first reaction is more confession. He falls flat down on his face. The interesting thing is, earlier on when he went up to the mountain, he said, God, please forgive the people. This time he says, forgive us. He had become one of the sinners himself. That's what solemn assembly is all about. We will be confessing sins that we personally may not be guilty of, but we know the churches. And if not this church, the churches. Solemn assembly is corporate solidarity when it comes to confessing sin. That's what. And then, God causes that glory to pass before him. Moses' face becomes radiant and he doesn't even know it. Something is happening to the man and he doesn't know it. He's being touched and transformed by that glory. And so he goes back down and he has new authority with the elders. He doesn't know why, but he has new authority with the elders. And so, they collect all the resources that are needed that they came out of Egypt with for the temple. And the temple is built exactly according to specifications. There's eight chapters of description of that. But it's all worth reading for the last verse. And this is what the last verse says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses not only saw a private encounter with glory, all of God's people got to see it. And I wrote down these verses, that are, this sentence has also been a mainstay in my life. Between the temple plan, Exodus 23 to Exodus 31, detailed instructions for the temple. 
Exodus 34 to Exodus 40, detailed building of the temple. But between the temple planned and the temple completed and filled with the glory of God was a leader who would not leave God alone. Those verses are like, are like a fulcrum. Moses praying in Exodus 32, 33 and 34 is the difference between a temple planned and a temple built, completed and God's glory filled. Because one man said, I will not leave you alone. I will say, show me your ways. Let your presence go with us. Show me your glory. A man's face was changed and a whole camp of God's people was filled with glory. Is that not worth it? Do you not want radiant faces? You won't know it, but everybody around you will know it. Do you not want transformation like that? Rather than just a little bit of a self-improvement program with a few New Year's resolutions that have no life in them, but are just dead legalism. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. And I'm going to keep asking God until I get it. And would it not be an incredible privilege for us to usher in God's glory this year for all of our people? Solemn Assembly is an opportunity for us to do that. And my brother Chris, this whole sermon is a gift to you. This is my charge to you. That you will become a leader like this in our midst. Please come and respond before we pray. I want to bless you with faith. To believe one thing particularly. As we stand at the beginning of Solemn Assembly. I want to bless you with faith to believe that repentance is actually a gift from God. That repentance is not a burden but a gift because it paves the way for His presence and His glory. And believing, may you act. Go in Jesus' name.